you stir it up and then it starts burning again it gets all hotter so without adding wood in you just stir it up and the coals get hot increases the steam in the world of lacrosse few grounds are more hallowed than the workshop of alfred jacques at onondaga nation well this is a, a firebox with an oil tank on it it's got about two and a half three inches of water in there and this produces the steam and that's where you put the wood for it to steam and when they're ready, you pull them out and bend them on these forms here. What I'm doing here is a, what we call a back bend, or the third bend. This wood is dry. They've been here for at least one year to three years, and they're ready to go. Hickory wood, and why are we bending it that way? Because that's what a lacrosse stick looks like. <laughs> this is the land you're on, acknowledging the Haudenosaunee, interviews and conversations with indigenous community members and allies, providing the context and perspective necessary to understand the complicated history of the land you're on. Think of it like pasta, all right? You can just break the pasta, right? But you cook it and it softens up and blah, blah, blah. Kind of like that. Of course, wood is not pasta either. So, so you have to learn how to do it. When you get a straight piece of wood and fresh green out of the forest, you don't get dead trees, you get live trees. You shape them to a certain shape, and then you dry them for at least a month before you steam them and bend them. Some people would think, why don't you just bend them when they're soft and green? Well, that's what I call a popcorn theory. The individual cells have moisture in them. And when you dry the moisture out, they shrink a little. And you steam them, they expand. You're actually stressing the cells. So when you bend them, they break. Okay, that's my theory. So you dry them before you steam them and bend them. We've kind of used up all the good hickory here. Well, there's hickory there, there's hickory there, there's hickory there, there's hickory there. There's hickory all over the place here. See the hickory nuts in the tree right there? Shagbark hickory. But that's not a good enough tree for what I do. Very selective. Now my apprentice and I, we went to a property and this guy says, I got 10 acres. He said, you can look around, take what you need. So I'll bet you we looked at 200 hickory trees. We got five because they weren't good enough. <laughs> they just weren't good enough. They're all gnarly and limbs and not good enough. So. That's just how selective we are. If you want a good lacrosse stick, you gotta start with a good piece of wood, right? Yeah, start with junk, end up with junk. My name is Alfred Jacques, J-A-C-Q-U-E-S. I'm an Onondaga, I'm a turtle clan, and I make lacrosse sticks. I've been making lacrosse sticks here on this property for about 60 years. The reason I make lacrosse sticks is because our people need our sticks for the ceremonies. It's part of our culture, part of our religion. And we play medicine games, healing games, and you don't do that with a plastic stick. So that's why I continue to make lacrosse sticks. My name is Jan Jimerson, and I studied communication rhetorical studies. 
I played on the Syracuse women's lacrosse team for four years. The creator put the medicine game on the earth for his entertainment to heal the people like around him and keep peace. Growing up as a woman, you're not supposed to see the medicine game. You know, it's used in our communities and stuff to like bring people together. It's like a brotherhood for like the men and everything. It is used to like heal our community. Although I'm a woman and like although I'm not playing the men's game, especially the medicine game, I try my best to like play for the creator. In our heyday, my father and I, with labor help, we produced, oh, just about 12,000 a year. And that's all handmade. That's a lot of work. My apprentice, he does a lot of heavy work for me. And, uh, you know, I, I don't cut ha carry hickory trees anymore. He does that. But I do all the finishing, and I'm good at finishing, so. Not as many as it used to be, and I'm not 30 years old anymore, so I can't do what I used to do. Well, the last couple of years, I've been making about 250 a year and traveling around doing presentations, speaking to people about the game. Alf explains what he's looking for when assessing a tree. No twist, no knots and limbs. If you look at a clean base, oh, eight to 10 feet, clean. And if you look at it and there's like a diamond in it or an eyeball sideways, that's where a limb used to be. So you can tell where the limbs used to be. And uh, the grain will go around the limb, so it's not straight. My apprentice here, Parker, he uh, worked many years training himself how to select the good trees. Now he's really good at it. He's real good at it now. When he first came in, of course, he didn't know exactly how to. It takes a good eye. Of course, I've been doing this for 60 years. <laughs> I was five years old. I was watching my grandmother. She made the Mohawk baskets. And so she was sitting in a chair with a jackknife trimming splints, smoothing them out, sizing them, thinning them out splitting them. I was watching her work and one day she just took out a jackknife. And she took a bunch of splints, threw them on top of me. And she says, watch what I'm doing and do what I do. I'll show you how to make baskets. So five years old, I had a knife and I was making baskets. She taught me to whittle wood, to carve wood. I could make a chain out of a block of wood, carve a link, get it loose, make another link. I made chains, you know, and just something to do. This is my uh, apprentice, Parker. Put in the uh, back bend holder. It, it keeps... It doesn't bend it, it holds it. Here, see? He bends it there, puts it in here, and this just holds the wood in position till it sets. Okay? Makes the set permanent allows it to, to stabilize. Find your mark, you get your footing and you start pushing. You're cracking a little bit, it's on its limit right there. Hold it just for a second and you bring it in. Not far back enough? No. Yeah. 
So there's a lot of setup, so it goes goes right as planned, you know. So it just doesn't happen without uh, preparing it. My name is Parker Booth, and I'm Eel Clan. I began working with him as a kid, carrying logs when I was like 15. But before that, I um, told him I was going to be a stick maker, and he said, "Yeah, all right." I always admired woodworkers and I knew I had a, a real passion for it and I knew when I got older that I would be a stick maker. I had a family and I moved away and then I came back and started making sticks. I wake up thinking about it, I go to bed thinking about it, it's just what I want to do, you know. I have two sons so they're learning. They're just getting old enough now to, uh, to be able to do the work. A lot of heavy lifting and patience and time. I would never say, oh, it's for my family or just for me, because if that was the case, then I would have never learned. He took me in, I'm not his son, so that's how it works. When we see somebody who has a, an interest or a gift for something, then we, you know, we consider it uh, our responsibility to uh, help them. A little long on the tooth here. I don't want to go. Cut it. I run in and saw it off. All right. Not too dissimilar from the land. Haudenosaunee and indigenous people were excluded from lacrosse as the originators of the game and gave that gift to the world and then excluded from the participation of that game. So the rules actually stated indigenous players were not allowed to play against non-indigenous competition unless previously agreed upon. That's in the original rule book. Neil Paulus grew up playing at Onondaga and was a three-time All-American at Nazareth College. He was named All-World in 2002, playing at the World Lacrosse Championships with the Iroquois Nationals. He currently serves as coach of the Dutch box lacrosse team. Based on that rule, indigenous players were then excluded completely from competition against non-indigenous people because they're deemed to be professionals. Didn't matter if they ever took money or not, they were just determined to be professional. And then you have this evolution of how they come back into competition, they're back at the world stage, and then there's this move to be in the Olympics, and guess what? They're left out again. We're talking 2022, where the Haudenosaunee are once again left out of international competition in the Olympic stage. There's disbelief. There's frustration. What's interesting though, and what allows people to see the humanity in it is that there's a lack of anger in the response. There's almost a, a forgiveness in the response. Like, really, again? You couldn't just do it right once. It had, it had to be a fight, you know? There's a lack of real anger. Back at the workshop, apprentice Parker Booth marvels at the stick maker's precision. 
when he works on stuff, it's so consistent that it's scary, that it's like everyone I can pick up just from his eye, I can pull off an inch and three quarter and I'll pick up another one, be an inch and three quarter, plus or minus a sixteenth. Probably no more though, that's what I mean about scary. So it's so consistent all the way through. So yeah, he does use a caliper for some things, but that's just for um, uniformity, you know, through the process makes it easier than guesstimation. But it, for the most part, when he gets up there, he knows what size that needs to be by eye. And the eye is, is pretty sharp if you can hone it. And he's honed it. If, if anybody's ever honed an eye, it's him. Yeah, I've done a few. <laughs> Probably worked on more than 75,000 sticks. Go ahead, you ready? This is putting the fire out here. So I've, I've done that way. I threw three pails of water in there and come back like 10 o'clock at night and it's all hot in there yet. I mean, you could uh, probably do pottery in there. Yeah, and we built that about early 70s. That's a good steamer. When this is smoking, there's just steam pouring out of it. So it works pretty good. And you gotta keep the fire going. It's got fire brick lined in there and a chimney. And when we started, we started with a barrel on some blocks with a fire, with no chimney or anything. <laughs> in our day, there was absolutely no instruction. Some people see me on a video making sticks, right? So you get a little sense of what's going on. In that day, nobody would teach. My father and I, people wouldn't teach. They didn't share the knowledge. So we were basically self-taught, trial and error. But we got pretty good. <laughs> the first tree, we ruined eight stakes. It was just, we didn't know what we were doing. But you know, we tried again, changed a little this, changed a little that. Pretty soon we were making a good amount of uh, very ugly lacrosse sticks. <laughs> um, you could catch the ball, throw, play lacrosse. They just weren't aesthetically pleasing. They were pretty ugly sticks. They just weren't refined. That came later. The refinement came later. You go in the woods, you find a good straight grain hickory tree, uh, approximately 10 to 12 inches diameter, and you cut it down, and you split it lengthwise like you split firewood. Put it in half, quarter, eighths. So each piece becomes a stick. You trim the corners off, then you hand carve it to the shape. Then you put a date on it, and you dry it for at least a month, sometimes two. And then after the drying period, you put them in the steamer, and you pull them out and you bend them around the forms that we have on here. So you bend them around, hook them with a wire, cut them to a length, a rough length. Then you put them up in storage for at least six months, a year. Some of them go two years. Then you put the third bend in, like we did here. Then it comes out of there, and then you you take the wire off and you take a cut on the head, and you cut the handle, oversized but smaller, more workable. Then you cut the handle to an octagon shape. Then you cut two lengths, the end, the other end. There's a motor on a table with a drill in it, and you push the wood 
into the drill. And I, I never mark a hole, so it's all by eye. So I do all the holes, then I hand finish it, trim the holes with a knife. I burn in my logo, I put the date on it, put my name on it. I shellac the head, only the head, not the handle. And um, then I put in the side nylon, the four leather thongs, the rawhide wall, and the webbing and throwing string. There are other traditional stick makers making sticks, but not all of them string the sticks in the traditional way. Parker and I get whole salted cowhides. So that's a job in itself. Right, Park? A lot of fun, huh? <laughs> yeah, it can be back-breaking, but when you're done, you look at the pile of hide that you made, and that's future. You don't have to make it every week. You make enough to take you through six months, eight months. It's good work. But I like to do it. Other people, they put nylon cord woven in with resin on it to harden it. And to me, that's a cop-out. And I like to keep it traditional, as traditional as possible. So that's why I continue to make the, the rawhide. I used to think and wonder about men up in Canada, non-native people, they didn't grow up on a reservation with lacrosse that I know. They're in a little burg up there in Canada, they play lacrosse, they become a superstar, they go play pro. And I always wonder, what, you know, what was their draw? Well, it's the game. The game is the draw. People love playing this game. You know, and me, I, um, I was fortunate enough to have Onondaga Nation behind me. When I was a kid, I saw Roy Simmons and uh, Oren Lyons play in the outdoor box down here. And I saw a lot of players who were really, really good. Fancy stick work, all kinds of stuff. And uh, I traveled with my father's team. I was the water boy. But we went into Canada, we went to other reservations. And it was a good experience for me because I could see what was possible. I saw all the moves. And uh, of course you see the moves if you're gonna try it yourself, right? Friends and relatives, uncles, grandfathers who played lacrosse, you know, it's in your blood, right? And what people don't know is right here, this was a lacrosse box. There was a rink right here. People sat on the hillside to watch the game. One end was down there, one end was over there, one side was there, and one side was here. So the first Onondaga Stadium <laughs> it was a wooden box, that's where we played. But uh, this was like, this is where I lived. I lived where there was a rink. And so we played all the time. Anytime we had a family dinner, a get together, all the sticks would come out. <coughs> We'd be out in the yard throwing a ball around, running around, playing lacrosse. It was just what we did as a family. When I was a little kid, I lived up uh, Akwazasne on the river. And up there, the Mohawks are probably 95% fluent in Mohawk language. I was weaned on Mohawk. And we moved down here, and very, very few people spoke it on a daily basis. So I kind of lost it. Bad for me, but you know, you learn phrases and terms and words and things like that. Every nation, every group has their own name for the game.
in their own language. And it's not lacrosse. In our language, it's Tehontikwa'e. Tehontikwa'e. Mohawk is Dewa'aladun. <laughs> lacrosse is the, the French Jesuits saw the stick that was big and curved. It reminded them of the bishop's crozier, the shepherd's hook. And so they called it lacrosse. And it stuck. But we have our own word for it. Tehontikwa'e. <laughs> I hope I'm getting that right. I think I do. I'd probably say it with an accent. <laughs> yeah. You have to understand like where the game comes from. In the season, like our team got really caught up with like the winning and losing. I just sat down. I was like, it's really not about that. It's like really about like honoring the game and like every time you step on the field or pick up a stick, you play for like something much bigger than yourself. You got to be very like grateful that you get to play it because I probably shouldn't even be playing lacrosse. I was like, but I'm at a top three school playing Division One lacrosse. They say girls aren't supposed to play lacrosse. Even talk about that with my team. I'm like, I'm not supposed to play like. When my dad started bringing my mom around, she played lacrosse, and like my papa did not like the idea of it. My dad's dad, yeah. and he'd be like, you're not supposed to play. She goes, why not? And now, like, you know, my papa never missed a lacrosse game, never missed one in high school. You know, he's there. He'll drive two and a half hours to see me play or sit. Even my aunt, she lives on the Onondaga Reservation, and she's always been, oh, she's so intimidating. You know, she's just, like, super stern, very traditional, but she has a big heart, but... The first lacrosse game she came to was like my championship game in high school. And like that was huge too. My cousins on the Onondaga Reservation too, like have warmed up to that idea of me playing lacrosse. Onondaga, they're just very, very like central fire, you know, very traditional. You know, my parents told me, you know, you're not playing the medicine game. You're playing with plastic sticks. It's not the same. Yeah. But then like, you know, people have their different perspectives. Some people would judge me for it, but like, you know, I didn't judge them for not playing. While some hold to traditional beliefs, Alf seems to have little issue, as our tour concluded in a room full of different sticks in various stages of completion. This is a finished girl stick I finished last week. That's pretty sweet. What differentiates a girl stick? Well, first of all, there's no pocket, and it's thinner and lighter. The men's stick are heavier and stronger, and they have a pocket in it. So I've got a lot of old sticks and I got some new sticks. But I gotta show you this one over here I got. This is one fancy stick I made. Uh, what, 96? 95. Got the feather on it, on here. I carved a hand on there holding uh, the wampum beads. I'm a turtle clan, see? It's an orange ribbon for the residential school kids. That's why I put that in there. This is a remembrance and I tell people why it's there. So I'll put the thought out there in people's minds. Residential schools didn't do much good to anybody. Didn't do any good to anybody. So that's my gamer. This is the one I kept in 78. And it's got a smile on here because lacrosse keeps us happy, don't it? <laughs> yeah, so it's got a little design burned into it. And a great stick, but it works for me. And this is like smooth as butter. Anybody comes around and here, try this. They pick, put a ball in here 
and they'll throw it to somebody. And they'll throw it right to the person's stick right away. They've never used it before, but that's how good the stick is. It's just magic. <laughs> I like that. 78. Every year before that, I was uh, selling my stick. Because the stick maker has a good stick and everybody wants it. As Parker left, Alf spoke about his apprentice and passing the craft down to future generations. Okay. Yeah, he's a hard worker. He worked real hard. My realization is that he's not me. All right. I mean, I'm self-employed and my boss is a jerk. <laughs> I work all the time. I'm always working, but it's uh, some of the things, if I don't do it, it's not going to get done. Now, he's not good at finishing like I am. He does the bull work, the heavy work, which I need, which I'm not strong anymore, not like I used to be. So he's learning. He's got cousins and nephews and kids, male kids, who very well could step into this and do this, carry it on. So his whole idea about learning how to do this is not just for him, but it's to teach to his kids and teach to other people. The Land You're On is a production of Access Audio, a storytelling initiative of the Special Collections Research Center at the Syracuse University Libraries. Produced by Brett Barry, Bianca Cayella Breed, Neil Paulus, and Jim O'Connor. Post production by Silver Hollow Audio. The Land You're On is distributed by WAER Podcasts, available at WAER.org, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you find your podcasts. Production help for The Land You're On from Cal Doherty and Kevin Claus. For further information, reading, and educational resources, visit The Land You're On Research Guide, available at soundbeat.org.